This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Hello. Good evening. Thank you to everyone for coming out this evening and to CIS Public Programs uh, for all the work and vision and support to make this happen and for this invitation tonight. Um, So the name of this event tonight is Life After Gamergate, but I would like to start with asking you to talk a bit about life before Gamergate. As a young person growing up, really co-evolving with video games and the internet and online forums, um, what was significant about these realms for you as a girl and adolescent? Uh, I guess it was kind of my whole world in a lot of ways. Um, I was very geographically isolated growing up and I kind of didn't fit into my super small village. So having the availability of, or, you know, I didn't, a lot of game designers usually grow up with like a similar story of like, oh, you know, I had a Nintendo and my friends had like a different console and I used to like go over to their house to play some and and it's like, I didn't really have like neighbors. Uh, The nearest one was like an 80 something year old vet uh, named Mr. Carl, who used to boil some hot dogs uh, and teach me how to laminate things. Which was dope. I mean, using laminator is super dope. It's an enduring skill. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, not, not quite the normal um, experience. I didn't really get my first home console uh, until 1999. Um, and the, the console was this thing called the 3DO, which uh, most people have not heard of bec- for good reason. It, like, immediately failed as soon as it came out in, like, 93, 94. So, like, I had it after the thing was already dead and forgotten about um, and my dad's like, oh, you're kind of a nerd and into this stuff. Uh, I don't really know what this is, but here's a weird box full of stuff with, of games like Night Trap, which you may know because it spawned a congressional hearing over if video games are bad for kids like me. <laughs> um, but it was, it was like this weird experimental thing. Uh, so it's, it's like people talk about video game nostalgia if you're into gaming at all, and they're like, oh yeah, Mario and stuff. I'm like, Night Trap, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so it, I was kind of a weirdo in that regard, um, but there there were other games that you know I I, I had kind of a, a rocky childhood. So when I was geographically isolated, didn't really have other people to go out and hang out with, and was just kind of stuck in the, this backwoods place. Um, I would play video games because it was like a whole other world that I could just go to and be in for a while and not have to think about anything, uh, where I could actually influence what was going on and had some sense of agency and could mm. just be somewhere else for a bit, and that was super valuable, and then the internet was just a bigger version of that, um, because like I'd get stuck on something inevitably in a game and just be like, okay, well, I have this net zero trial disc I got from a check cashing counter at the nearest grocery store 45 minutes drive away. Um, I, I'm going to learn how to reg edit on this computer that I made out of spare parts my dad got in trade for motorcycle work. Uh, does, does anyone know how to solve this specific game problem? Oh, oh, the internet. Oh, God. Mm. It's everything. There's ev- I, I just, it was like a whole big world that was the actual world suddenly opened up to me. Um, and I needed that, especially because I was like queer in an area where, which was kind of conservative um, and not really, I didn't really have anybody to talk to there. Um, and I, I had depression from a very early age and, and being able to talk to people um, behind a screen when I couldn't really talk to people and like face to face was... Uh, super crucial, and then to have like this wide group of friends all over the planet that I met through various embarrassing things like pretending to be some weird anime character in a Yahoo chat room um, <laughs> before I knew what D&D was and basically getting into like role-playing games as a young, a youngin before actually knowing that that was a thing. Mm. Um, and Yahoo pool rooms and like Neopets and all this like weird early 90s stuff because I didn't have good enough connection to play like World of Warcraft or any of the big deal games. Um, 
it just like, I made so many actual friends and that really did a lot for me and kind of like, it saved me in a lot of ways. And it was the thing that helped me get out of the small town situation I was in and eventually moved to Toronto and find my way into game design there. Mm. And as a independent video game developer and designer, what, um, what animates the kind of games that you've created? Oh, um, what since, worlds have you wanted to create for others? So since um, I usually do most of the things on my game, like I can do the art side and, or at least like figure out how to make it work if I can't, like I'm the slowest drawing animating type person in the world, so it's like, what kind of weird art can I use to not have to do that? Like what can I kind of cobble together from all these different mediums to, to make something interactive where, you know, the power of uh, creating games I think helps um, instead of that old adage of like show don't tell, um, games let you say do don't tell. Like you get to create this interactive space for this third party that you'll never meet or really know um, to sort of have a co-authorship over the thing you're making, which is super cool. Um, and especially watching that evolve as you make it and like trying to see what different people do, like what seems logical to them and, and, and like having this sort of empathy for this unknown person um, like sort of like writing uh, messages in a bottle and checking them out to see um, and just kind of hoping somebody sends send something back. I really, I, I'm super in love with that. And mm -hmm. like, especially just because like my brain works in a lot of systems, um, it's really cool to be able to model things that are hard to convey via like books or uh, film or anything that's just like doesn't re require this specific involvement in such a direct way of the person uh, experiencing it. It's just, it's such a powerful tool. And with the games that you've developed, um, like Depression Quest, which was perhaps your most well-known for, uh, but there have been many others, um, what kind of experience were you trying to create for people, or what are the main kind of themes around which your work revolves? Depression Quest is kind of an outlier. Mm -hmm. um, most of my games are comedy. Uh, and in usually trying to like experiment with that format uh, in some like it's like a lot of people feel like you can't do comedy in games because games are nece like necessarily systems and systems are predictable but comedy relies on surprising and subverting expectations mm -hmm. but it's like yeah but if you're you get to decide what the rules of this world are then you can build them in to be subverted deliberately in fun ways um, so, and, and playing with length too, because I mean, when I was a kid, it's like, yeah, I got nothing better to do. I can play 60 hour long games where with like plots that go in a million different directions and are hard to follow. But now it's like one of my favorite games I've ever made is called Waiting for Godot the Game and it's literally just a loading screen. <laughs> um, so I think one of my biggest, uh, one of my biggest things that I love doing in games and one of the, I think one of the things I go for is like getting the player to at some point go, God damn it, Zoe. <laughs> but with Depression Quest, it was, you know, a little bit, like, I, I feel like almost anything you make as an artist tends to have some autobiographical tendencies in it. You leave your fingerprints on it. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, sometimes I do that in a very direct way, like Depression Quest, where it's like, I'm just really, I did it uh, at a very low point in my life, um, where I basically, you know, I'd been kind of messing around with this idea, and then I lost uh, my job because America's great, and uh, I got sick, so I got fired. Mm. <laughs> um, and the trailer is actually, uh, my face is still red in it from crying because uh, I was working this minimum wage coffee shop job and basically living in a closet in Boston. And uh, I was like, I don't know how I'm gonna make rent next month. I don't have like, you know, any options here. And I was trying to get a job in the, uh, the games industry and ran into some uh, very weird walls like being asked what I do to bring on sexual harassment onto myself in an interview. Uh, during one and another one getting like almost like straight ripped from a, like a sexual harassment seminar like a producer giving me like a shoulder rub and I'm like oh this is not happening like it feels like is this a goof is there like am I being hidden camera yeah, yeah it's like this is too on the nose to mm -hmm. be real right but regardless um, you know it was uh, I, I just felt like I was totally screwed um, so I'm like you know what I'm just gonna go home I'm going to make the trailer Valentine's Day is in two weeks and I've got a messed up sense of humor so I'm gonna announce it and in the trailer it's just me laying in bed staring at the wall for 15 seconds and it just says depression quest coming out Valentine's Day. Um, and I did that because it's like I know the job hunt sucks and 
you know, if I didn't have something else to do and push myself to do, if I didn't force myself into that position with this sort of public gamble, um, that I probably would not have lived through that because I knew how, how low I was and I didn't know what else to do. I couldn't afford healthcare, so I wasn't in therapy or I didn't have access to meds or anything like that. Um, so I just needed to put my brain somewhere else um, and I didn't expect it to blow up the way it did. Like I thought like three people would play it, two people would be like, what is this? And one person would be like, oh yeah, okay. Um, but it was overwhelmingly out there. Uh, like I immediately just destroyed my server uh, account. Like I went like 9,600 some odd percent over bandwidth on the first week and I'm like, oh no. Uh, and they're like, oh, but the first overage is free. And I'm like, okay, good, because I do not have that money. Mm. Um, so it was a weird outlier of just a game I had to, I had to make, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so there is, to say the least, a lot of mystification around Gamergate. Um, they have been asking a lot of people if they know about it or what they think it is, um, right? And the term gate signifying some kind of scandal or controversy that's been brought to light. Um, And a lot of the news pieces that I've seen that had come out a couple years ago or a few years ago, even if it's focusing on issues of online misogyny or online abuse, still are caught within this frame of that Gamergate was some kind of consumer movement about centered on ethics of games journalism and your book crash override um, really powerfully reframes what this movement was and what the cultural significance of it is to help us also understand where we are today from the vantage point of being the primary witch (laughs) at the stake yeah could you um, share with us some of the outline of how this unfolded and what this, what this movement was sure. and what you experienced? Um, I mean, the, the ethics and games journalism thing started, um, I think, like a week or so, maybe. I, my sense of time, if I don't have like the timeline in front of me for the, the first uh, bit, is really hazy because I wasn't sleeping, I wasn't eating, I wasn't even really having much to drink mm-hmm. uh, water-wise. So I was just like in this long haze that felt like it was endless. And uh, it was weird going back and doing fact-checking for this book and being like, oh, that was like a couple days, it felt like two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, but what happened initially was I was out with friends, uh, I had broken up with this guy, I had like a, a five month on again, off again, mostly off again relationship with, uh, that was abusive, like down to him controlling what I was wearing when I wasn't even around him, which it's like, uh, you can read as much feminist theory as you want, but that doesn't somehow make you immune to falling into stuff like that, which was a hard thing to find out firsthand and later and then you know, forgive myself for as if that's my fault at all. It's like, you, it's so easy to internalize so much nastiness about that. But I had finally cut him off entirely. Um, and then uh, I had started seeing somebody a week before Gamergate started. Um, and we were, like, he was accepting a job in France. And I'm like, well, I can make games on anybody's floor. I might as well just like go and hang out in France for like the three months that the visitor's visa is automatically granted to just to see if this relationship's gonna work out because also why not? Because I have the option to and that seems great. Um, And we were doing like sort of a farewell party slash birthday celebration thing. And then my phone just started blowing up. And I didn't actually see the original post uh, that my ex had cobbled together and workshopped to go viral and have the most amount of damage to my life and career as possible. Like he even had in-jokes, the same way somebody would market, would like work on a viral marketing campaign and was just trying to ruin my life. Um, And I didn't see it at first because the first two places he tried to put it up, immediately yanked it, being like, what the, no, uh uh-uh, this is weird. And one of them even has like like a weird, like they were both kind of comedy forums and had reputations for not having the best community towards women. So, wow, so shocking that somebody would put something there like mm-hmm. that. Um, and eventually it migrated to, an, uh, to anonymous message boards. And that's really when, when stuff kind of picked up. And just even that first night, we had to leave the bar because I was just getting inundated with like stuff about people carrying disinfectant with them in case they ever ran into me at a game event because they heard I was down to fuck anybody. Um, changing the death date on my Wikipedia to soon. Um, 
trying to find the home addresses of anybody they could connect to me in like this weird conspiracy, like we used to call it Detective Poop Socks, uh, MS paint board with all these like red lines between like various people that I frequently didn't know. Um, And that all happened like overnight, like literally overnight. We were a a friend who I had just met that day, (laughs) which is a hell of a time to meet somebody. Um, kind of shepherded us out of the bar and into his apartment to try to deal with this. And uh, it just was just streams of like death threats, rape threats, uh, trying to dig into my life and my family wherever possible over every single way you can contact a person. Um, it was just this, this flood. And I was just kind of numbly screenshotting all of it because um, it's not like this was the first time people have gotten harassed in the games industry, and one of the things that was the most common in any of those situations were pe- people denying that it happens and being like, oh, it's just blown out of proportion, or it's made up. Mm-hmm. So by this time, I had already gotten into the habit of screenshotting anything that was like particularly egregious, so I was just like scrolling screenshot, scrolling screenshot, and, and unable to really feel anything at that point other than, oh, you know, <laughs> being someone with depression, when you have thousands of strangers um, saying all of the things that your mental illness tells you about yourself that you know is mental illness, like, oh, nobody in your life actually cares about you. They're all lying to you. It's just a matter of time until everybody finds out that you're a fraud and they only supported your work because they pitied you. Of course, of course, all of this is, is true. They finally found me out. Like, I don't have talent and I'm worthless. Mm. Um, I, I thought everybody in my life was gonna bail on me. Um, so it was like, it was a really, really hard few days. And then after all of this, which, you know, my ex's chief allegation was that I cheated on him with five people, but then also that was rede- like not actually correct uh, because it didn't fit his fun in, uh, meme in joke thing where he needed the number five to work out. Uh, it was actually three people, but then like later changed it to 90, which is like, who has the time? In five months? I wish I was that productive with anything. Good Lord. Um, but yeah, any, anyway, uh, retroactively some, this guy that basically makes YouTube videos, uh, that are more or less like the two minutes hate towards various marginalized people or progressives, mm-hmm. uh, made a video repeating all of this stuff and then was like made up some accusation that in order, so I frame this properly for this to have been a true accusation, I would have had to go back in time sleep with a games journalist who worked for a press outlet that I had already written for, um, give myself a a positive review of my game, go go back to the future, erase any evidence that it had ever happened, and somehow profit off of a free game. Uh, Which, I mean, that's more powerful than I knew I was. And I I guess I would have had to memory wipe myself as well. Um, But, you know, it played on these old anti- any anti-woman specifically sentiments like oh she's only successful because she had to have slept her way there right it couldn't be because of any merit no. or artistic talent yeah mm-hmm. I mean did you know that if you touch a penis a game appears <laughs> I did not and I was like oh I could have saved myself so much time wow um, and yeah and it was wild too because it's like and, and they tried to and I watched this happen in real time because you know, I was a teenage asshole um, that used to participate in like anonymous message board culture. Granted, back in the day when I was doing that, it was like against the Church of Scientology um, and like this whole hacktivism thing. Because uh, I was one of those kids. Like, I even had that like crappy V for Vendetta mask and everything. <laughs> and, like, yeah, hack the planet. Ooh. I got I got a floppy disk of the Anarchist Cookbook. Yeah, gonna make some bombs that don't work because I'm bored and I'm too much of a coward to do anything actually real with that. Um, so, you know, I knew that people would be organizing any of the scary legal shit in IRC raids, uh, internet relay chats, which are not as easy to track down who's doing what in as any other sort of place online. Um, so I had just been sitting there watching as they saw this ethics thing and they spun up misinformation, um, and started to basically do fake news before fake news was a term people knew about, except I'm not a political figure, I'm just a random independent game developer. Um, so the ethics thing was like a convenient smokescreen, and if you'll notice, I am not a games journalist, uh, yet I was the, the primary target for a while, and then they spread outward, and it seemed to be this weird coincidence that all of the people they fixated on weren't men. Huh. Weird, right? 
Also, they weren't games journalists until like later somebody had written a piece saying, actually, you know, there's no real gamer identity anymore because games have become so broad and, you know, like half of mobile, like gaming is almost predominantly uh, women now because mobile gaming has really expanded stuff and there's no, it, it's, there's too much cool stuff to actually nail this down to mean anything anymore. And then they're like, they said gamers are dead. They're killing us now. And it's like, what the hell is going on with this? Um, so ironically, they ended up attacking a lot of journalists who were actually pushing for real ethical concerns in my industry mm -hmm. involving labor rights because there's a massive issue with that uh, uh, like across the board involving the, the games industry's weird relationship with gun companies, like actual stuff mm -hmm. that's not like weird moral panic st stuff like Night Trap caused in the 90s, but like real concerns. Um, they actually ended up being attacked like more than anybody because really it was about and my ex had done this by design, like seizing on this anti-progressive, anti-quote-unquote other sentiment that had been boiling on the internet a long time before I ever showed up. Um, and well, and honestly, like games were really an afterthought. The only thing that really was unique about games, I think, is how much the industry sort of bent a knee to that. And like, as you said, with like the early re like reporting, like there was so much framing of that, well, some people say it's about ethics, mm -hmm. but other people say it's about harassment, mm -hmm. but how could we possibly know? It's like, right. literally look at anything, like anything, literally just look at anything. I mean, my mentions on Twitter are public. The channels they're organizing all of this are in public and just happen to be white supremacist groups. Maybe figure it out. And then Breitbart got involved with Milo Yiannopoulos deciding to build a career off of me. Um, brought me to this, this center of, the, of what we're now calling the alt-right. And, uh, you know, Stormfront got involved, like a bunch of men's rights activist groups got involved. And it just became this giant nasty flashpoint for an ongoing culture war that had already existed. And that is like the shortest possible version I can give of a mess. And that's, that's kind of the problem too. When you're talking about anything complicated and the internet, mm -hmm. um, it's usually so, it, it disincentivizes people who don't know what's already going on because you've got the techno babble jargon of internet stuff. You've got internet slang, which is a constantly moving target and can just, and takes like, Explaining in jokes on that is just insufferable to listen to. Um, and then you've got to deal with the fact that people were actively trying to obfuscate what was actually happening, including like right. donating to feminist game charities, which was like a guy said I was mean to him once, so let's give him $70,000 to do something. Um, and to like try to whitewash the image and the abuse out of this and you know, trying to be like, oh, but there's girls that, and girls and people of color that also think that these people are bad. So they're not, they're, you can't say it's about misogyny because we, girls also disagree with us and it's like, you know that that's not a real defense of anything, right? No, you don't. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's like, I, it's, it's super hard to explain to anybody that wasn't there in a lot of ways just because it's like so dense of mm -hmm. just deliberate attempts to hide the truth and then just internet nonsense. <laughs> Given what you... Um endured that actually feels like a very concise, densely <laughs> coiled answer. And so um, from reading your memoir, which is like part personal story and sociological analysis to help us understand the shifting landscape of the internet, from the perspective of various hell realms that you went on this Helms. forced journey. Helms. Um, so when this began, you know, that you and people close to you were thinking, oh, internet has notoriously short attention span, this will last max two weeks, and then we'll move on to something else, and yet because of this constellation of forces that you just described, it kept continuing with you as this abstract symbol or flashpoint or projection screen. Um, how... What was it like in terms of going on from month to month as you began to see different types of tactics escalate um, or take shape as really this organized hate cyber mob gained force from different uh, realms? It was uh, weird. <laughs> I mean, duh, but uh, just like... What I guess the weirdest part was watching people who should know better enable the behavior. You know, like watching outlets do the two sides thing and like, you mm -hmm. know, even lending it any sort of credence 
And it's like, really? Like, I understand the people who are being disingenuous bastards who are trying to ruin my life. Like, I get that. I know that they're, like, I'm a convenient stand-in for all this anxiety they have about people who they think are not like them coming to, quote-unquote, their territory and feeling threatened by that and lashing out or projecting some something onto me uh, that, that fits the narrative, whether it's, like, and I mean, that came down to even as far as people like coming up with these massive conspiracy theories that I was like secretly trans or secretly Jewish just to have an excuse to like go after me like mm -hmm. any of that even matters uh, nowhere near as fun as the secret conspiracy that I was actually a Roosevelt heir or vampire um, <laughs> I missed that one that one was good um, and when you're just at the center of that just like a person and then worse still watching people being targeted because of being associated with you or people that you've never met becoming targeted because people think they're associated with you, which like, I've not even met all of the, the people I was accused of sleeping with yet. Um, and I imagine that would be a weird conversation. <laughs> or any of the other Zoe Quinns that have had their personal information uh, distributed online because someone thought that it was me. Um, you, it, it's like feeling like there's you, and then there's this very divisive cultural talking point that's you. And it's hard to really wrap your head around that. And especially because, I don't know, it was, it's like simultaneously the most and least personal thing. Because it's like your life and your family, like especially when my, my family started getting targeted. Uh, like it doesn't really get much more personal than that. Or like when nude photos of me were spammed at anybody who talked to me on Twitter for a while, or printed out and jizzed on and sent to family members. Um, that's like pretty personal, but like at the same time, it's like, okay, none of this is true though. Like this isn't actually me at all. And none of this happened and none of this is real. And honestly, if um, my co-founder of the Crash Override Network, uh, Alex Lifshitz, hadn't been there with like the person I started dating a week before this was happening, mm -hmm. like weird way to meet somebody. Um, like I don't, know that I would have been able to hold on to what reality was. Especially because like the domestic abuse stuff was still lingering in my head to the point like, when, the, when all of this was happening, I didn't even think that the ex who did it was the person who did it. Because I'm like, no, I mean, he, he, he tells me I'm terrible, but he has good reason to, I am terrible, and I'm, I'm not good. And you know, he's a vegan for cruelty reasons, he wouldn't do that to me. Yeah. Um, and I, like, it was hard to get those hooks out of the back of my head for the longest time. And I mean, I only even really got clear perspective on that stuff, going back and like going through the time that I confronted him after all of this started, uh, and just being like, oh yeah, like I, I was like, I still super had like mind control stuff in the back of my head, like, like someone put a virus, like a computer virus in your head and hijacked what your normal rational th thinking is. Um, so, you know, it's like impossible for me to have perspective on it to a certain extent. Like the fact that, you know, I, I joke with friends now, it's like, if you want to find out who sucks on your Facebook friends list, let me comment on one of your posts. Um, and being, like, people I've never met having such strong opinions about this fictional version of me. Like, how, how do you deal with that other than, like, dis disassociation by necessity? You know, it's weird. It is super weird to be, like, a metaphorical punching bag. And in equal mm. parts, it's kind of weird to be uh, lionized by people who really look up to me for um, standing my ground, but like, you know, in, in a totally different way, but it's still like, I'm still like a messy train wreck. I don't know, like, uh, my biggest game is about the fact that I have mental illness. I don't want to let anybody down. Oh God, I hope I don't let anybody down. Um, I'm, I'll do my best. Crap. I, mm. It's like, being thrust into the limelight and into this position I, I never really asked for was very odd. I mean, like weeks before uh, Gamergate happened, I'm like, I, you know, I want to be the Oscar Wilde of games. I want to like launch games from atop a throne of, of boys and girls and just be like, oh, yes. Um, not exactly somebody who should be the spokesperson for anything. Um, you spoke about in your book how um, basically given um, the reach and machinery of the internet that your ex was able to essentially crowdsource abuse. Um, and in your chapter called Witches and Inquisitors, you know, coming to understand other people who were 
the targets of harassment in the way that you were, but questioning who are these people on the other side who are gaining a lot of social capital, a lot of notoriety, and even profiting off of this kind of organized hate and dedicating a tremendous amount of life energy towards creating videos and coming up with um, horrific threats and spreading different types of life ruination tactics. What did this experience teach you about um, how this is incentivized within these structures? It taught me that people in power really do not give half a shit about any of us. Because it's like, do you get mad at the people that are engaging this behavior to a certain extent? I get way madder at the people who see that and go, yeah, that's fine with us. You know, we don't need to do anything about that. Like, it's not like YouTube and all of these tech platforms that, are, that this behavior is monetized and incentivized by do anything. And I know they know because since founding Crash, I have talked to them about it, so I have fucking told them to their face about it. They're like, well, you know, free speech, though. And it's like, yeah, I don't know what, or, or like, oh, we, we can't silence dissenting opinions. And it's like, all right, what about my dad's home address as an opinion? That's not an opinion. Uh, and it's like, I know that it, it's, they're so disincentivized from doing anything about it because the internet runs on this economy of attention right. and traffic equals good. And you can show that to your stockholders and say, look, we made numbers go up, hooray, we're doing good. Um, and at the end of the day, there's no way to differentiate in these things that they gather between content that's you know, being engaged with on such a level because people like it and it's like a cat video or something cool somebody made versus somebody pointing the finger at which marginalized person to scream at next. And the fact is that there are so many communities that are based in disingenuously inflating those numbers and gaming those systems. Like for example, like the fact that you know, frequently on the first page of my Google search, it's not like any of the New York Times pieces about me, any of my work, sometimes not even my own personal website. Uh, it's like Smegmadan420's blog about how, you know, that sluts back at it again. She had an opinion or continue to exist. Can you believe that? By the way, please like, fave, and subscribe. Here are my t-shirts. Here, give me money. Um, and it's like, similarly, there's bots set up to archive anything I do at all, just in case there's anything embarrassing or a mistake I make. And there's, and there's just, because like people take that and then run it through this content mill of creating this like sort of, there are communities based on recreationally hating people. Right. And it's very, I think it's very alluring to people that have nothing else in their life and are just dealing with something broken inside of them that need, feel the need to lash out. And oh, hey, now I actually have a community and I have stuff to do with them. And the fact that you're a person is kind of, not as important uh, or doesn't really seem to register. And that's really like underscored by the fact, by like when I used to, um, after they got my phone number and were calling me up constantly and, and saying a bunch of gross stuff, um, some of them would be like, is this Zoe Quinn? And I'm like, yeah, you, you called me. <laughs> and they'd be like, oh, you know your phone number's on the internet. I'm like, uh-huh, <laughs> I'm aware. And they'd be like, oh, I'm sorry. Because it's like, who calls people in my generation anyway? Like, that's such like, a weirdly intimate thing. So suddenly I wasn't like this massive dehumanized pixels on a screen. I was somebody whose voice they heard. And I think that like, really kind of messed some of them up that didn't really think that much about it. Um, and there was a really beautiful piece, I think it's down now, written by somebody anonymous called Here Lies My Hatred, that he's like, yeah, I was super depressed. I had a lot of stuff going on in my life. I actually lost my fiance over hyperfixating on Gamergate stuff and drove her away. And you know, I, I didn't get diagnosed with depression until way later. And you know, after I had this like crisis of conscience, where I'm like, why do I even care about any of this? And it's like, oh, because I have other stuff going on, and getting treated for that, and just being like, oh, oh. And like similarly, when I was like a little teenage shitlord, I was I was like depressed. I was queer and had no one to talk to. Um, I was in male-dominated spaces where women were constantly pitted against each other. So you know, when you're your identity is like you're the girl, there can't be two the girls in any situation. So, you know, you end up being a misogynist little turd um, when you're a teenager and that's just sort of the environment and community vibe that you get. Um, and the last thing you want to do is like extract yourself from the only community you've ever had. Right. And that's like profoundly sad. Um, and so some of the 
um, tactics such as doxing, releasing people's private information, and with an implied invitation to stalk or harass them um, or their loved ones, as well as swatting um, with a fake call to have militarized police show up at people's homes, um, as well as some of these message boards like on Reddit and 4chan um, have all been um, used by the alt-right. Um, how does, did your story and your experience as a case study help us understand where we are now? Well, they only really have one playbook. And, and that's kind of the, the thing that I've noticed um, since like founding Crash and working on like literally thousands at this point of cases like mine that you know maybe didn't get as uh, in the news, um, but still uh, were the same sort of tactics. And it's like yeah, like especially because like so much of online abuse and these tactics stem from offline things. You know, like a lot of domestic violence survivors end up being targeted by stuff like this because why would it? Why would an abuser stop? As like, why would they not do that? You know, mm -hmm. and that's one of the most frustrating things. Is like people tend to think that the internet is this magical alternate dimension where you know things don't actually matter and it's just this frivolous other thing. When really, it's like more and more linked in with our day-to-day -day life, and you know, like between like the same sort of fake news type thing being generated about political things versus being generated by people, that still happens. Um, you know, a lot of the fake grassroots artificially gaming systems using bots, all of this stuff we saw play out in the election. Right. And you know, even though like Trump was still like voted into power by older, more wealthy white Americans, it's like there was still an undercurrent of like this misleading disinformation stuff driving that and like pouring into places like Facebook where more and more Americans get their news from. And the fact that Steve Bannon was directly responsible for putting me in the crosshairs and then was in the White House, like it's some of the same people and it's not even like they started with me. Like it's very easy to track it back through like various black feminist communities, mm -hmm. various trans communities, any, anybody who doesn't look like a 1950s sitcom dad basically mm -hmm. has a, a community dedicated to hating them. Um, and it's, it was just wild to see some of the same actors and the same stuff and then seeing on the national stage the same garbage play out and the same fuck-ups on the side of people who should have been there. And, and we're still seeing it now, like people like condemning Antifa as much as they're condemning neo-Nazis. It's like, mm -hmm. are you serious? They just fucking killed somebody. Right. Like they just ran down a girl on the street in broad daylight. And you're, you're like, but you know, this, this property destruction is so much worse that one time it happened. Like, what? It's the same, like, oh, you know, some people say it's about ethics and games journalism, other people say it's about harassment, but how could we possibly know? Let's equivocate the two and then make them debate. It's like, you can't, the, the, the middle point between the truth and stuff that's totally made up is still stuff that's not true. You can't do this, like, weird, oh, it's, it's the same, or there's equal weight right. stuff here. And we're seeing that happen in the media in mass, and I feel like, you know, between the fact that we are in this 24-7 news cycle that sort of pushes on journalists to get stuff out quickly and fast and first without really digging into stuff, um, that sensational, that runs on that same economy of attention of like, oh, the more eyes that we can get on this, the better. Like, let's make some outrage nonsense just because, you know, let's, let's put up an opinion piece. Let's lionize people like the Google idiot um, who wrote that frickin' memo about how women are biologically inferior. Like, not, let's right. just keep writing like all these puff pieces because sunlight is the best disinfectant. It's like, no, disinfectant is the best disinfectant. <laughs> some shit rots in the sun. <clears throat> And it's like, wow, imagine if you spent half as much time like, like spotlighting people who are actually part of the solution instead of going like, oh my God, look at this bad guy, you guys. I don't know, he's, but maybe he's got some points. Some people say he's got some points, but we think he might be bad. It's like, what the fuck is that, really, like other than free press? Because you can't shame somebody who's proud of what they're saying and doing. Right, and in terms of free press, you talked about, like, in terms of this entanglement with content-neutral algorithms and more clicks leading to more popularity, rising to the top, that then anytime you would be engaging online or being yourself using your own name, that it would be dragging all of this, uh, this immense toxicity with you. My toilet paper sucked my shoe, yeah. 
And so in terms of, I want to switch in terms of talking about your incredible work with Crash Override, um, both in terms of lobbying at different centers of power, um, and also how it sounds like disheartening that has been, um, and to really work to uh, have solutions that are focused on people who are the targets of abuse and who carry lived expertise from that um, experience. Um, what type, what, where has your work led you with Crash Override? It was, it was kind of wild uh, writing this book and having to take the time to do it because the second half uh, used to be like, we should try this or, you know, this is what people in power should, it would be nice if they knew this. Um, and then as time went on, it's like, oh, no, they know. They just don't give a shit. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and every time there's like a bump in um, reasons to care about online abuse for a company or any, like any time it's a, like a topic people are talking about, there's like a little bump in seeming to care and making some empty gestures. And, you know, I was brought into a lot of those rooms and be like, oh, see, look, we're talking, we're talking to her. It's, you know, we're, we're trying to fix this. And it's like, just because they're talking to you doesn't mean they're actually listening. And, you know, I saw cases that dealt with, like, people targeting me handled very differently from cases uh, of much more egregious and over the line and clearly violations of laws or terms of service abuse happening to, like, some random black woman. They didn't care as much. They didn't invest as much time because there's no PR thing in their mind to lose from that. And mm -hmm. especially when it comes to tech, you trade silence for access. Um, and, you know, like, the second half of the book became mm. very much more... Uh, rather than saying this should happen and, you know, this is like stuff that people should know about so they can do something about it. It's like, oh no, they know they don't care. Um, this, I, I need to burn some bridges while I'm standing on it so they know I'm not fucking with them. Um, and I'm kind of just over even trying to work with tech until people are more savvy about how bad things actually are and that these meaningless gestures are in fact meaningless and that tech will continue to not do anything on its platform or not cut into anything that could possibly make their numbers go down until they're forced to. For example, Twitter has a little flag in their API that's like, if you are a Nazi and you yell Nazi shit constantly, uh, they can't show, your account doesn't show up in Germany and France because it's illegal for them mm -hmm. to do that. They don't ban you. They don't tell you to stop saying Nazi shit. But they will, however, ban people saying fuck you to, to the Nazis after a Nazi tells people, like, hey, I'm going to put you in a gas chamber. Totally fine. Not considered a toss violation, but being like fuck off is suddenly. Um, and, you know, like that, it, it, it's, you get a lot of good people working in broken systems. And I was able to get some relief for some of my clients, and talking about like with tech specifically here. Um, you know, I would take their case, like basically I would have a two-way relationship with these, these companies where I'm like, okay, train me in your terms of service so I know what do you want off your platform ASAP? Like, tell me that. And then I will help you, I will be like, mm. not saying it in such pointed terms, basically, I will help you do your fucking job for once. Um, because I am sympathetic to the fact that they do get inundated with massive reports that are like, oh, I don't like this cat picture, or this is an unflattering selfie, or I don't like this person. And it's hard to process that much volume uh, at scale. But, you know, I'm like, okay, so like, help, help me help you, basically. I will bring you stuff that I know you want removed if you give me like an escalation channel and will respond to my emails when I tell you what's up. Um, and the amount of excuses and like w one time, uh, like I had to seriously say to a major company, like, okay, so this underage revenge porn of my client isn't a toss violation because it was before they transitioned, just so I'm understanding this correctly, mm -hmm. just so we're clear on this. Or like, oh, you don't want to remove this person that's just spamming death threats and pictures of people's houses and with their home addresses because sometimes he posts about his lunch too? Okay, noted. And then having to go back and be the person that tells the person, like, yeah, they know they just don't care. Let's see what else we can do is really exhausting. Mm. Um, and so, like, the second half of the book sort of morphed into, you know, here's what we've done. Um, this doesn't, like, a lot of these things don't work. Here's what, here are the times that companies and people working within those systems did do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And this did help, like, trying to instill boredom into harassment as much as possible. Like, <laughs> you know, like, that's, that's something that is very much from my game design background is, like, there are these positive feedback loops to abusing people online for people who don't have empathy for that person, like this immediacy uh, of this like Skinner box of screaming at people, um, that if you just make that less fun and 
more bureaucratic and more annoying and slower, people give the fuck up because it's not good for them anymore. Like Instagram just did yesterday a, a new policy where you, you can block people and it won't ever tell them that they're blocked, which is actually really good. Mm because people would take blocks and then spread, like screenshot you blocking them and then be like, hey, hey, I did it, guys. And I still get like little tiny Nazis being like, oh yeah, block me, bitch. And I'm just like, mute. Oh no, scream into the void. No one can hear you. And that's like way better because like they're, they're like trying to get that feedback reward and like trying right. to make that more boring. Mm-hmm. And companies that are designing that into their UI are super helpful. Um, too many places are trying to, trying to be like, oh, if we just get law enforcement involved, things will be better. And it's like, no, not even slightly. Um, not only are sometimes cops responsible for this abuse, because I've had those cases, and wow, are they a fucking doozy to try to deal with. Um, you know, when people who are disproportionately at risk for violence from the police are also disproportionately right. at risk for being harassed and being abused and being stalked and threatened online, why would you try to mix those two things together? And if a solution is bad for like a trans worker of color who's a sex worker, then it's probably not good for a, like not. We should just discard it. Mm-hmm. We should discard it. And if we can uplift people that are dealing with the most shit, and everything else will get better too. So like all of the, the <laughs> but, but seriously, and, and, and like there's not enough, the, the, those, there are not enough people in the room that, that are of those communities to say that. You know, they'll talk to my white ass because it's like I'm a quote unquote good victim and I was like, at the, I was like the, the little kid, that was the, the little girl at the bottom of the well basically, right? Mm. Um, and it's, it's a good PR look for them, but you know, seeing them reach into other communities and more radical activists especially because they're like, oh, I don't know, they might say something bad, we're really, really scared of everything. Um, it, it's just, it's really frustrating. Um, so yeah, like I would like to see government interference be more in consumer protections and treating privacy as like a consumer safety thing, like because this can all be, like consumer safety is not, is kind of a, a version of what we're talking about here without having to wade into what what is free speech, what is harassment, nightmare issues, because I swear to God there's no phrase like free speech that will summon more insufferable people. Um, because, but like at the end of the day, we're not talking about government oppression here, we're talking about what's happening on private platforms. Right. So if we talk about quality, if we talk about, you know, was, did you build this thing to be a place where Nazis can scream at people? Yes, no. If no, maybe you have a problem. Um, and like look at it from this consumer protection thing, especially in, in terms of like privacy and data security and not just, you know, there's so much, so much online abuse escalates because of lack of privacy protections and gets dangerous and can cross into offline spaces where it might not otherwise um, because there are companies that can buy and sell your home address and your personal information and that of your family and link them together um, without your consent or knowledge. Um, and that's pretty much completely unregulated. And then other sites, right, that can charge a fee to take that down, sometimes owned by the same people, like with the revenge porn or non-consensual intimate imagery. That was shocking for me to learn. Yeah. I mean, that's why they got those guys on extortion charges, not revenge porn. Right. Uh, Similarly, like, Spokio is also owned by a company that owns, like, Reputation.com now. Wow. What a weird coincidence that is. Such a coincidence. So, yeah, I mean, like, that, that's, I think it's, it's largely unregulated because I think most people don't know it exists. Like, most of the people that come to me uh, for, like, help on, on basically hiding from these people, uh, I can just be like, okay, here's your home, this, like, this is you, right? This is your home address, your phone number. They're like, how did you find that? And, like, it took me five seconds because there's, like, 20 sites that all sell this information to each other. And I know you never gave it to them, but maybe your cell phone provider did. Or, you know, how many of you have signed up? You don't actually have to raise your hands because I know it's all... all it's, it's everybody. Um, you've like signed up to a service and there's like a really long terms of service thing and you're like, I'm not reading that. I don't know what this is except... Right, in tiny like point four font. Yes. Also mm-hmm. Equifax, hello. <laughs> yeah. So there's so uh, much insight in your book in terms of like very um, pragmatic tips of like defense against the dark arts. Dork <laughs> and, arts. Uh, dork arts. <laughs> Thank you. I like my puns, too. (laughs) Not everybody does. And of course, while there's not like one particular spell or potion or protocol, um, I wanted to ask you about some in particular. Um, One is that you mentioned that, you know, it's become this axiom of saying, don't feed the trolls. 
and that that might have been really useful at an earlier, gentler time on the internet, but saying that right now that is the wrong advice. Why do you say that? Because for, well, trolling used to be like pr pranks you could play on your friends and still be friends with them, not mm -hmm. sending them death threats. Um, so like even just the, the nature of what people call trolling is not, like we used to call that flaming back in the day, like being an asshole was called flaming. But I, I think you can probably guess why that term fell out of practice, um, considering how homophobic a lot of nerds are. Um, so now that like we're, we're trying to talk about being a dick or being disingenuous in the same breath as threats and stalking and trying to kill people with cops by proxy, it's like, we gotta kind of separate that out. That's not quite the same thing. Um, oh, I totally lost my train of thought, great. Oh, in terms of don't feed the trolls. Don't feed the trolls, right. So frequently what the trolls are feeding on is you existing. You know, like so much of this is targeted because of people's identities and there's really no way to not feed a troll who's mad that you're a person that exists online or a person that exists anywhere that had an opinion or had darker skin than them or wasn't, wasn't cisgendered. Like, how do you not feed that? There's no way, and beyond that, it puts 100% of fixing the problem on the person that's being targeted by the, this stuff. So it's like, it's not on people to not exist and not be offensive to people who want to ruin their lives. It's on the people to stop fucking ruining people's lives. And it's the same as like, oh, there's a bunch of people camped out on my lawn screaming at me to, that they want to kill me, and people being like, oh, just use the back door, what's wrong with you? <laughs> what? <laughs> like, like, how do you actually respond to that? Um, so it's, it's just asinine for so many reasons at this point. Right, and that if part of the goal is to silence yeah. certain individuals or communities. Yeah, it's like, right. it's sort of like, um, you know, one of the biggest offenses I saw at, from my industry in dealing with the harassment that was happening to me is like, oh, the Streisand effect, or let's just improperly cite that entirely because, you know, that the whole thing is like, oh, if you try to remove something, it'll be worse later, and you'll actually enable bad behavior by paying any attention to it. It's like, you know what fucking enables bad behavior? Having absolutely no fucking consequences whatsoever for it. Not ever having to deal with that. Just letting it happen. I'm pretty sure that is literally what enabling it means. Right. It's not, oh, this is bad, we should do something. And it's, it's this learned helplessness bullshit that just lets people who can press a fucking button and make shit better for people off the hook. Right. I'm swearing a lot, I'm sorry. I'm just realizing that now. <laughs> and so, I mean, anonymity, right, online, online can be a source of freedom and liberatory spaces and creative expression, right? It can also be a source of dehumanization and acting with impunity. And you've mentioned a few times that um, in terms of some of the ways that dehumanization is fostered and like what you were just talking about, like people, perpetrators not actually being able to engage with their own empathy or feel any tangible consequences or feel that the, who they're targeting is a human being, that restorative justice might be a framework that could be used, right, to help um, shift this dynamic. Are there examples where you've seen restorative justice work in terms of encountering this type of online abuse? It's, it's tricky because I don't think there's like any sort of, to my knowledge, um, effort to build that into any of these platforms. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so at, at most you get people being like, oh, we're gonna lock your, like to pick on Twitter again because apparently I'm super into doing that right now. Um, <laughs> I agree. Um, you know, they'll sometimes be like, lock your account until you delete these things because they're bad. And it's like, that usually just is more backfire on the person and now they know, right? Um, so I think it's almost like something that we need to dial it back and almost look at earlier forum culture in a weird way, because mm -hmm. we had moderators and we treated communities like a thing you actually have to tend to. Right. Instead of just throwing a bunch of shit together and being like, oh, we're all here, so we're a community now. It's like, no, community's not so much a place, it's a thing you do, it's a way that you treat people. And, and not equating unmoderated spaces with like this free speech absolutism. Exactly, yeah. and, and it's like free speech isn't free if someone else is fucking paying for it and driven out of your pl your, these places, you know. Um, and I'm talking not in the legal sense, but in the, the theoretical ideal sense that these platforms are, because again, they're not fucking governments and they can do whatever the hell they want. I mean, that much is clear anytime someone posts like a gif of the Olympics and immediately like magic, it's gone. 
Um, but you know, telling people that you're gonna rape and murder them is like, well, I don't know though. It's like, mm, I think right. you do. slippery slope once you start censoring things. Oh, right. oh censorship. Right. That's that's one of my. That's like the second magic word that summons insufferable people. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like we had this same argument in the 1990s with spam, and spam is way more free speech than death threats, which are actually not even protected speech. And you know, people are like, I have a right to advertise my stuff the way that I want, as much as I want, because it's free speech. And ultimately, a lot of platform holders had to be like, all right, well, sure it is, but however, you're interfering with the, the platform's intended purpose, and you're making the experience worse for everybody else. Therefore, we can ban spam, and now it's a billion dollar industry. So how can we, like, we can avoid the entire free speech harassment definition muck 100%, even though I still think that's kind of a cop-out, but uh, I'm a little bit jaded at this point. Um, but we can just make it a quality argument, and it really comes down to, was this what you wanted from your platform? And really, like, I think, shame the shit out of some designers and programmers and be like, this is what you've made. Is this what you wanted to make? Then maybe you should fix that. And really, it's that simple. If your platform is broken and mostly allowing Nazis to scream at people, and you don't want that to be the thing, either, like, honestly, just be honest. Just say, yes, we, we actually are fine with the Nazis, really. Like, say that. Don't make terms of service you'll never enforce. Like, don't pretend it, it's something it's not. And again, like, maybe that's a, 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 a place where government can get involved, is like, rather than trying to strip away important things that allow the internet to function, it's like, is this company living up to what it's saying it's going to do or not? Mm -hmm. You know, and that's where it ties into that consumer protection angle instead of like turning it into a speech issue. Just be honest. Like, if you're cool with the Nazis, say you're cool with the Nazis. Just don't tell me you're not cool with the Nazis and then be cool with the Nazis. Mm -hmm. Not that hard. In terms of like basic digital hygiene or protocols for protection that we would all benefit from, what are your suggestions. So this is where it's less depressing because as much as I've been kind of gloom and doom about the situation with institutions, the best thing I've seen in my casework is having community support from people who know what the fuck is up, who aren't going to tell you just to go offline and can help you do these things. And that's something we don't have to wait for people in power to give half a crap about because I think at least, if nothing else, I'm sure everybody in this room and anybody paying attention to politics in general knows that the people in power do not give half a shit about us. They're not about to suddenly give half a shit about us and we have to take care of each other now. We have to do that now, and we can do that now. We don't have to wait. So Digital Hygiene 101. Um, stop using the same password for everything. They make password managers now. They're free, and they work on everything. You don't even have to know your passwords. I don't know my passwords. It's great. Um, <laughs> except for when I lock myself out, and then it's like, oh, no, I'm too secure, and this is a pain in the ass. <laughs> um, Two-factor authentication is the thing. Uh, it's, it, it, it's basically you go and check a thing off in your settings and it'll be like we will text you a code or do another verification process with you. Um, hackers can't bypass that even if you have your password which is dope. Um, reviewing your privacy settings on everything. Do you actually like there's a lot of different privacy checkup tools for various social media platforms. Um, being able to say like view what people can see about you and be aware of that and being cognizant of what you're putting out into the world is great. Um, and reviewing that anytime you're nervous is also great. Um, Another thing is like, uh, I highly encourage anybody to Google the crap out of themselves. Google everything that you would not want written in the sky about you. Like if you have, still have like a, a, I use a lot of really weird metaphors in that specific chapter, but if you have like a clowndating.com profile and you don't want people to know that you have a clowndating.com profile and you don't want to use it anymore, maybe go delete that. Um, so just like Google like yourself, your home address in quotations, stuff like that, and anytime you see anything that you have control over, remove it. Uh, a lot of these places that buy and sell your information, um, like Spokio, whitepages.com, there's like a kajillion of them. There's a great site called Privacy Duck, which is a weird name, but whatever, it works. <laughs> Um, they have lists of the most common information brokers at all times and procedures on how to remove yourself from those sites. Do that. Just, just do it as much as possible. Like if you, if you file these uh, opt-out things, it usually makes it so you're flagged in the system and they can't just keep putting your information back in, but still periodically check to see what's out there about you. Because why not? Why not never have to worry about this? Mm -hmm. um, if you have a website, um, if you've signed up for a URL or anything like that, 
make sure you have domain privacy on because all of your information goes into what's known as the Whois database, which is all publicly accessible, which is a major way people get doxxed. Um, you know, if you're really worried about security stuff and you have reasons uh, to not want to be seen ever, uh, there's a number of post office box solutions if you can afford that. Um, super suggest that because then you don't have to put your home address on stuff. There's also, for next level stuff, uh, apps like Burner, which will generate Burner phone numbers for you. So if you're like worried about getting a creepy Lyft driver or you know, need to use a phone number for a delivery that you're not sure of, you can just have something where it's like, okay, if this turns out to suck, I can press a button and it's not my problem anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so that's like the, the TLDRS, the, the shortest version that I could possibly give. Um, but those are like just good starting points. Also, if you ever worry that your hardware, like your phone or your computer has been hacked, completely fa factory reset it. It's better than trying to go in and figure it out and remove malware unless you are someone who actively knows what you're looking for and, and dealing with that sort of thing. Um, and yeah, that's, that's the, I, I need to stop, otherwise I'll go on about this for a very long time. Well, and people can find resources online that you've yes. made available through your site. Um, and in terms of like critical um, thinking and digital mindfulness, um, how can we contribute to a healthier media ecosystem in terms of what we consume, share, amplify? What's good to keep in mind given where we're at, where bots are the majority, um, fake news sites reinforce each other, and we have you know the troll in chief and the first lady who's. <laughs> Uh, issue is cyberbullying. I mean, irony doesn't touch it, but um, oh, right. what are some kind of like guiding stars? Stop sharing shit just because it's sensational. If it sounds like bullshit, it might be bullshit. Like seriously. Um, also, please stop spreading uh, stuff to be like, wow, look at this asshole. Like, stop it. Um, Especially because, like, okay, like, okay, say this white supremacist says something shitty on Twitter. I don't need to see that screenshotted. Seriously, I block these people for a reason. Don't help with that. Um, start actively questioning weird shit you see and hear online, and don't repeat it if you're not sure about it, if you can't verify it. Like, if something said, like, for example, a friend of mine, like, shared this thing, and I'm like, that sounds a little bit weird. Is that true? Typed it into Google really, really quick. The first thing that came up was Snopes. And it's like, okay, all right. So this is this is not a real thing. Um, and it's good to just be skeptical. Like as ironically as shitty as the internet atheist community tends to be towards progressive people, uh, skepticism is really actually important. And not just about um, you know anything dogmatic, but very specifically about what we're seeing and consuming in the media we're, we're seeing. Uh, another thing is like, do you, like you don't have to dunk on everybody all of the time online. Like you really don't. Um, you know, like a lot of people uh, might see something where somebody super sucks, and it's not like it's like a private citizen. It's not like a politician or whatever, mm -hmm. and they just feel the need to get that dig in really quick. It's like, okay, I get it. You're working through some stuff, but do you really need to rush to do that? Is this really helping someone? Are you just kind of being a snowflake in someone's avalanche here or not? Right. Um, and, you know, is that necessary? Is that helping anybody? Like, really question yourself. Um, we need to stop uh, treating people in our community as being so disposable. Mm. There's a very big difference between uh, trying to hold people accountable and just dogpiling on someone like that is in our community. I'm not, I'm not, this is by no means a don't punch Nazis thing. Definitely punch Nazis. Um, if you, like, make sure like you do, like you know how to throw a punch though, don't hurt your wrist. Um, but it, and, like stepping aside from that entirely, but people in our communities, we, I think that there's a lack of mercy and an ease of throwing people into the fire here. And there's, I think there's a difference between accountability and between, um, you know, rushing to that as our first solution to everything. Um, you know, be aware that when you make something public, you give up control over what happens next. Um, so it's like, you know, during Charlottesville, people were being like, well, is doxing Nazis okay? And it's like, okay, well, this is the thing about doxing. It's usually not right. There are usually mm -hmm. people that happen to have the same name and there are usually people who take that stuff too far. You've also got people on the far right that are very into like, oh, if we attack these people and then blame it on the leftists, then we'll look like the good guys because that's logic to somebody. Um, 
so it's like, just be aware that like, it, it, the accuracy is an issue, the public nature of it is an issue. Mobs are not known for their uh, wisdom or Critical self-reflection. Yeah. yeah, or ability to maybe say, hey, this is a bit much. Right. So question, like, d are you doing something that has to be done in this public call to action format? We have other tools. You know, there are other things we can do before mm -hmm. immediately jumping to try to, to form a mob over anything. Um, so just slow it down. Stay skeptical, stay curious, um, because if something sucks, it's gonna suck later. Um, and you know, all of that aside, um, we need more, oh God, I hate myself for doing this, but there are enough people that are social justice warriors, we need to start thinking about social justice healers because support classes are underplayed. <laughs> I see we have some support names in the room. Yeah, me too, it sucks. Um, but, but like in a less video game, video game terminology, like how can we make our communities more resilient? Mm -hmm. um, checking in on people in your community is super cool. Like practicing that whole community as a way that you treat people thing. Like um, if you see someone's having a hard time, just see what's, what's up. Check in, know who's around you, know what's, what's going on. Um, you know, offer to take care of each other and step in when, when shit gets bad. And like do that not just when stuff's in crisis and not just in this way where you're consuming misery and calling it activism. Because mm. to a certain extent, yes, learning about fucked up shit that happens to other people, very important. But I think too many people fall into this cycle of just only consuming the bad shit and sharing the bad shit and saying, oh my God, everything's fucking terrible. And it's like, all right, but where are you when people are doing work and living? Are you supporting these people when they're thriving? Are you supporting who they are beyond their suffering? And we have to move beyond that. It can't, like thriving cannot just be something people with privilege get to experience. You know, mm -hmm. like I can't help but think about how many people get forced into this activist role because some shit happened to them and no one was doing anything about it, that before that were like brilliant artists or, or thinkers or writers or doing all this cool stuff. And it's like, they don't get to do that cool shit anymore because we've, we've pigeonholed them into this like activism cons consumption of misery cycle. Mm. And furthermore, like if you're like sharing stuff like videos of police brutality that are not like hidden, that people can't opt into seeing. If you're somebody who deals with that on a daily basis, that's gonna be fucking shitty for you. And you know, we gotta be more aware and, and like making sure that we're, we're uh, bolstering the sense of community in and beyond just defining people by their suffering, I guess is the shorter version of that rant I just went on. What would your sci-fi future vision of the internet be? Like where do you hope that we would arrive Something that's more opt-in than opt-out, that centers consent, that centers privacy, that um, doesn't make false promises on what is and is not okay, um, and that really strengthens, I think, what's so magic about the internet and the fact that we can hear from people that we would never have heard from otherwise because they are disincentivized from traditional, they're, they're gate-kept away. You know, that's like one of the, the coolest things about the internet is like you can just do a thing and have it be there. That's what matters, I think. That's what's super important to me. Um, the support networks of marginalized people that are isolated from each other or like can't be out about certain parts of their identity finding each other and finding community and taking care of each other, I want that strengthened and I want those people protected. Mm -hmm. And I want all of us to take care of each other and to be cognizant of this thing uh, as being such a, a marvel that we've created and not just cede it to whoever's gonna scream the loudest. That's probably super optimistic, but I really don't give a crap. I shoot for the moon anyway. Well, and your work is very much helping us take steps in that so. direction. Zoe, thank you so much for spending time with us tonight. Thanks. Sorry I swore so much. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu podcast. <laughs>